Welcome to 321iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Cheryl McGee Wallace, Special Advisor to iRelaunch and your host for today. As relaunchers, we focus almost myopically on the critical first role post-relaunch. While that is, of course, crucial, it is also important to focus on longer-term issues as well. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Sylvia Ann Hewlett, founder and president of the Center for Talent Innovation, a Manhattan-based think tank where she chairs a task force of 82 multinational companies focusing on fully relaxing the new streams of labor in the global market. Dr. Hewlett is the author of two books we'll discuss today. Executive Presence, published in 2014, sets forth research on curating your brand, image, and reputation over the course of your career. Her 2013 book, Forget a Mentor, Find a Sponsor, highlights a crucial distinction between mentorship and sponsorship. Dr. Hewlett, welcome to 321i Relaunch. We're all very excited to have you with us today. Uh, It's great to join you for this conversation. Before we begin, I also wanted to thank you because your books have meant so much to me personally as a relauncher. I remember receiving a copy of Off-Ramps and On-Ramps when I was in the second cohort of the Goldman Sachs Returnship uh, Program. I found the book both encouraging and challenging uh, at the same time. We'll discuss that later. But uh, can you briefly tell us a little bit about your background and your own version of a nonlinear career path? You're actually an economist, correct? You know, that's right. Um, My first job uh, here in the States was at Barnard College, Columbia University. Uh, I was an assistant professor of economics, and I thought I'd kind of won the lottery because it was a perfect job for me. Uh, To be at a women's college on the Morningside Heights campus seemed like a fantastic place uh, for a feminist who was trying to uh, make, you know, economics relevant to women's lives. But in some ways, uh, I fell, um, I guess uh, I was, uh, I I became a a victim of some of the things I then wrote about. Mm -hmm. Uh, For starters, you know, I really focused on three things as I started that job. Uh, I obviously wanted to perform, uh, you know, excellently. The pursuit of excellence was very important to me. So uh, I won a teaching prize. I, you know, published uh, some important uh, both books and articles. And I also, you know, tried to be a good citizen on campus, you know, joining yeah. the key committees, you know, writing yeah. all kinds of uh uh, you know, recommendations for amazing students. But what I didn't do um, is find myself a sponsor. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a mentor, a, a lovely woman, an older woman who had an office next door to me, and she was fabulous. You know, when um, I had a premature child, and she was terrific in terms of guidance and advice and a shoulder to lean on, all that kind of uh, supportive stuff. But when the tenure battle uh, came down the pike five years, you know, later, um, Annette Baxter was not uh, very helpful at all. In fact, she was pretty useless. Wow. Uh, she was very well intentioned, and um, I was very fond of her. But you know, she was a <clears throat> medieval historian. 
I was an economist. She didn't sit on any of the right committees that uh, would be helpful for me. And uh, the other thing that I realized, uh, you know, when those five years came down the pike is that she had quarreled with the dean. So she had no particular clout uh, in the administration. So um, uh, what I realized is that when the uh, decision around my promotion uh, went uh, through the process, you know, I, I aced the early rounds of the decision, but when it got to the last committee of Columbia University, there were five guys on that final committee, committee and no one knew who the heck I was. Mm. Uh, I mean, they were looking at, you know, my dossier and it was pretty impressive, but there were folks up for tenure that year who were much better known yes. to the, the folks that mattered. And what I had not done over those many years was um, be strategic, right, about mm -hmm. who uh, I could uh, impress the heck out of, who could be a powerful advocate for me when the crunch came. And, and of course, I had failed to do that. So, uh, you know, I went down. I mean, I was not uh, promoted. And, you know, that year was very competitive. There were three people from the economics department. And I think if I stand back, we were all very well qualified. But mm -hmm. one of the other, you know, young guys um, was much more strategically placed in that he had a really cultivated sponsor and I had not. Yes, that's really an, a, a very important lesson. And then, of course, the other thing that uh, happened to me uh, during those years is that I, I did lose twins in the seventh month of pregnancy uh, and then had a very premature child. You know, childbearing was not easy for me. Mm -hmm. And I did take some leave of absence because there was no uh, extended um, parenting leave back then. Uh, I think I was allowed, you know, 10 days off to give birth to my premature son. Um, and I think what I realized uh, at that time that, uh, that the forces that are ranged against you, mm -hmm. uh, if you do um, hit unexpected obstacles, uh, on the childbearing, child raising front, uh, it's so easy to get knocked off course uh, for a critical period of time, uh, which can do terrible things to your earning power going forward. Uh, and again, that was another storyline of those early years in my career, which made me very sensitive, I think, to the struggles uh, to stay on track, uh, to stay on this road to success. Uh, and I clearly saw myself as not just well qualified, but incredibly motivated, you know, to really have a career that um, uh, uh, was somehow important in terms of the impact I, I could have in the world. Absolutely. And I think that clearly explains the motivation for your research has provided such a consistent voice in this area of being very proactive in terms of professional development. Let's move on to uh, the book that I that first introduced me to you. Um, could you please tell us about your early research on nonlinear careers in the book on, excuse me, off ramps and on ramps and how it led to the development of return to work programs? Well, as you know, um, around about that time, I started to do uh, a lot of analysis of what actually happened uh, when women took a break 
from their careers. In the data I collected, I looked at uh, women with degrees uh, on track in the white collar workplace. This was the universe I looked at. And no matter what sector you were interested in, whether it was you know, finance or technology or uh, manufacturing, roughly speaking, in America, 31% uh, of women will take a significant voluntary break from work. Uh, at some point in their late 20s, early, mid-30s. So about a third of women do take this break. Uh, this is not just true in America. It's true in the UK. I, I did similar research there. It's true in India. Um, it's true in Germany. And interestingly, the kind of one-third figure is very similar in those countries. So there's something universal about this pattern. Mm -hmm. the, the only country that I looked at which was um, out of whack with the one-third rule was Japan, where, you know, 74% of women take this break because uh, they are dealing with a much, I think, more severe uh, layer of bias and discouragement uh, than women in the West. Uh, so, you know, I do have quite a lot of global data. So what happens to these women? Well, first off... Um, 89% of them are trying to get back in um, three years or less uh, after their off-ramp. In other words, it's not true that, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of women somehow, you know, float into the sunset for 15 years. You know, the pattern is that women will be out less than three years. Uh, and fortunately, when they try and get back in, of these 89% who take that off-ramp, uh, only 40% succeed in getting full-time good jobs back in their field of expertise. Only 40%. Uh, a bunch get part-time jobs, a bunch get jobs uh, in sectors where they start again and are pretty lowly paid, et cetera, et cetera, because they fail to get back uh, where they want to be. But I, I think those figures are you know, very telling. And obviously, when you then go talk to a lot of these women, as I clearly did, what they uh, say is, look, um, I'm not looking for all kinds of <clears throat> major concessions. I really want back in. I need the money. I want the independence. I feel I loved uh, my job. I mean, there are lots of reasons that go beyond finances. But what I felt uh, was happening uh, in those um, attempts to back it, get back in is that there was a lot of stigma attached uh, to me as a woman with this gap in my resume. Uh, it's as though, you know, I kind of lost my marbles uh, <laughs> or my Absolutely. edge yes. in this brief period because we're talking about one, two, three years. We're not talking about 15 years. Um, and so there is a great deal of discouragement. Uh, and by age 40, uh, many of these uh, wonderfully uh, qualified, you know, uh, accomplished women have downsized their dreams. Uh, between the ages of 35 and 45, uh, the number of women who want to lean in, right, <laughs> yeah. uh, has really gone down dramatically. And it's obviously a response to the circumstances in terms of the um, women attempting to unwrap. Uh, they get really very seriously discouraged. You know, you can 
beat your head against the same brick wall a few mm -hmm. times and then you get realistic, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you actually do have uh, lower aspirations for yourself uh, going forward. Uh, I have a whole, you know, set of narratives of what this um, downsizing of dreams looks like in, in people's lives. And of course, it's full of, I think, um, poignancy. And also, it's full of, um, I think, loss and waste for the country. <laughs> because exactly. uh, this is a huge piece of our human capital. And we don't do a very good job in terms of helping these women make a real transition to the next phase of their lives. The other thing I want to point out is that when I did the research, uh, and I've done it twice since, and I've also done it in all these other countries, so it's very much um, an evergreen piece of research for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that the factors that force women to take an off-ramp are very complex. Uh, and what I see in many countries is that there are pull factors and there are push factors. Uh, the pull factors are largely around uh, issues of care. Uh, for instance, you know, 70% uh, of women say that one of the big triggers for the off-ramping decision was childcare issues, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. But guess what? 30% uh, say it's elder care issues. And that yeah. figure is growing like crazy. And as you might understand, you know, uh, there's now a daughter track as well as a mommy track because, you know, women get hit harder with the elder care um, responsibilities uh, than do their male peers. Uh, and obviously some women get hit with both. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so that there are two periods uh, of off-ramping, which, you know, is particularly uh, damaging to earning power. And I think when I read your book, at the time I read it, <clears throat> I found it life-saving in some ways. It did set forth the cold, hard facts, um, and it explained what I was experiencing at the time in terms of lowered expectations, but also it provided a path forward. That research gave the ammunition that a lot of firms use to develop programs. <clears throat> And yes. your research also con uh, included lost productivity. Yes, because what I wanted to do is essentially incentivize companies to take this um, seriously as a strategic risk uh, in terms of their talent pool and uh, to make them see the ways in which it was uh, <clears throat> good for the bottom line to actually figure out how to get these women back on board. So let me <clears throat> perhaps talk about two programs which um, not only were important in and of themselves, but uh, have been copied by, you know, 60, 100 other companies around the world. And there's a new um, a slew of programs as we speak because of the tightness of the labor market, you know, in certain countries and in certain sectors, for instance, in tech, you know, there's such a shortage uh, of highly skilled people. So one program I'd like to talk about is a program called Encore, uh, which was um, a very high-profile program floated by Lehman Brothers um, about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the very first return ship type programs, the yes. return to work programs. <clears throat> 
Yes, you're totally right. And it got copied by a lot of other companies because it was, uh, you know, one of the first, but it was also very successful in terms of what it did to the brand. Mm -hmm. So what they did, they invited, um, you know, several hundred uh, women to do a course uh, at Lehman Brothers itself which was an extraordinary course which jump-started your ability to get back uh, into the financial sector, not necessarily at Lehman, but anywhere really on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about it, it was extremely hands-on in terms of how do you um, create assets out of your network, how to you rewrite that resume so that your time out of work shows the leadership uh, and skill development that perhaps you cultivated in the local community, right? Exactly. Uh, it gave you ways of finding sponsors in your network uh, that you had either post-college or more recently in your career, how to reach out and turn mentors into sponsors who would actually advocate for you for uh, job possibilities. In other words, it it was very hands-on and it uh, recognized the uh, potential struggle with confidence, right? That some of these women were dealing with, and what they showed in their own figures. Uh, this was Lehman um, Brothers, you know, internal analysis, is that returning women um, caught up very quickly in terms of hard skills. I mean, it isn't as though they became enormously rusty or somehow, you know, their their brains had, uh, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they were uh, incredibly, um, uh, you know, fast studies in terms of getting caught up. Mm-hmm. But what they felt uh, they didn't always have is a uh, uh, the confidence level, the poise that they used to have even three years ago because they'd been hammered by, you know, the rejection they had been dealing with. But the other thing is that they had allowed their networks to go cold. And if anything came out of, you know, those um, uh, very wise, you know, uh, working sessions at Lehman was exactly how to uh, reinvigorate your network and your sponsor pool, uh, which was going to be, you know, your ticket, really, you know, Uh to the next uh, series of jobs. The thing they did very cleverly at Lehman, which is why I want to pull it out, is that they... um, generated a lot of publicity uh, around this program and they particularly uh, showcased this publicity at business schools Mm. and for a few years in there they were employers of choice at business schools because the newly graduating class of uh, female financial uh, specialists from business schools saw this as a company that was on the leading edge of allowing them to stick around right as female professionals. I mean, obviously, yeah. these women didn't need off ramps right that second. You know, they were only 25 or something. But they loved the fact that, you know, 10 years down the road, uh, the structures would be in place at this company to allow them to go from the middle to the top mm-hmm. <laughs> without taking, you know, punishing uh, career breaks. So I think the story uh, line around the Lehman program was extremely successful in going directly to the bottom line because their recruitment efforts, you know, uh, yielded some amazing, uh, you know, results for for those years. Exactly. And also what I hear from that story is 
those expectations are now a given in a lot of firms that you will hear issues of inclusion and diversity actually emphasizing the fact that the uh, firms offer a flexible working style, not only for working parents, but for those who intend to become working parents or those who are having other issues. So that it's not the um, unspoken secret, as it were, that God forbid a human being would want to have a family. And and let's um, in this conversation also, you know, be very inclusive because we do need to remember that um, perhaps twenty five, thirty percent of professional women um, go through their careers, you know, without. Um, uh, as a non-parent without biological children, but they definitely run into elder care issues. And exactly. one, co- uh, one company that uh, has always recognized this and at least for a period of time had some wonderful programs in place is City. Uh, they understood that elder care issues were universal for women. You know, uh, mm-hmm. there isn't a woman in her 50s uh, in particular who... Um, uh, doesn't deal with some of these, uh, you know, really long-term and, and very anxiety-producing uh, problems. Because the thing about elder care, it goes on for much longer in terms of crisis management. And, mm-hmm. you know, the storyline is all downwards. It, you know, it's something you need support around. Yeah. And so um, City actually created some leave of absences of, um, for this group, they made it gender neutral, of course, and 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 created some extraordinary supports in terms of whether it was, um, you know, uh, a one-stop shop for uh, the best uh, assisted living situations, or a one-stop shop for uh, advice around, you know, various treatment options. And I think that that um, again needs to be newly. Um, front and center because we are now in a world where the older elderly right are are a bigger and um uh longer lived group and you know i again have recently gone through you know a nine-year period where my mother was dealing with a dementia and you know i'm uh very aware of, of the toll that can take and uh she still uh lived uh, in Wales she she's um she she is you know she's now passed but during that extended period she lived in Wales which is where I grew up and it was a 19 hour journey door to door uh and you know I would have given my eye teeth I think to have had some um automatic leave of absence that that I could have taken um you know in that period of time uh which obviously uh you know was not <laughs> um you know, the art of the possible where I uh, was working uh, during those years. So I, I do feel that we, we shouldn't just see this as a childcare issue. I think we should also see it as an issue of care. More Absolutely. Widely. And also uh, at iRelaunch, we uh, expand beyond uh, the issues that affect solely women. In fact, we find that our, at our conferences across the country, at least 10% of the attendees are men. So many of these issues are, are really cut across gender. They do. You know, uh, I celebrated the 
the, the men who attended the Encore program at Lehman in my book because their stories were even more poignant. Because uh, I can see in my data that men face, when they take time out for childcare or elder care, they face even more stigma than women. Uh, because as one said, you know, we're immediately seen as losers. Uh, we're immediately seen as uh, someone who belongs on the B team because it's so uh, uh, against the culture to do this. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, there is, I think, an even more powerful set of uh, biases, you know, uh, that come into play. Um, and I do feel that when it is... Um, a cross gender, uh, uh, you know, group of uh, cohort who are, you know, learning these techniques together. Uh, it's a very um, magical thing because to share this uh, it, it is it is pretty great. You know, one rather funny story. Um, uh, when I was collecting all of this data, and you'll appreciate this, I decided to take a look at the attitude of the male spouses, all right, of, of women who uh, were in the midst of an off-ramp to see what <laughs> they thought yeah. uh, about this scene. And it the results of that, the data was extraordinary. Um, it was so bimodal. About half of uh, those men were thrilled to pieces that their wife had um, taken an off-ramp uh, or being pushed out. I mean, you know, both mm -hmm. things uh, <laughs> were true. Um, yeah. And felt that, you know, finally, you know, someone was on the case and they didn't have to worry about the home scene nearly as much. I mean, a very yeah. tradi traditional kind of response. But then almost a half of men uh, felt really that they had been seriously let down because they uh, wanted equality of um, burden, equality of opportunity, and they were particularly uh, upset that uh, they were now left with the full financial burden of, you know, the mortgage, you know, the school fees, yes. you know, whatever it was. And yeah. uh, they understood that in some cases it was not entirely chosen by their wives because, um, you know, it was a pretty impossible situation if you, um, uh, you know, couldn't find childcare, couldn't afford childcare, or was dealing, you know, with a, a really incredibly onerous elder care situation. But what I picked up from that data is that almost no one was in the middle there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this affects family life, right? Uh, this yeah. is not just something that is on the heads of an individual. And I do feel that uh, women and men are also dealing with, you know, the dynamic of the partnership or the marriage that they're in uh, Absolutely. When, when this happens. Absolutely. So we're going to turn now to the, to the meat of our uh, discussion, executive presence. So generally speaking, what is executive presence and why is it so crucial to one's career? You know, the subtitle of my book, Executive Presence, says it, it all. You know, it's closing the gap between merit and success. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, do you project 
that your leadership material, right? Uh, do you do justice to uh, your credentials, your track record, your experience, you know, your worth, right? When you open your mouth, when you uh, uh, attempt to command a room. Uh, and, you know, someone, uh, a male leader said as I was beginning this book is that, you know, um, he recognized it when he saw it. This is executive presence. Uh, but he as sure as hell couldn't uh, unpack it or describe it. <laughs> so this is a book where I have a lot of data. I have a lot of stories, a lot of narrative uh, to tell us what exactly it is this um, projection of credibility, this projection of, you know, I am the person you're going to pick for the next big opportunity. So it's important to emphasize that we're not talking about intelligence or substance, but the subtle messages about self-confidence and ability that we can telegraph without really even knowing it. These are split-second decisions, uh, right. yet potentially enduring assessments, correct? That's right. Um, and, of course, uh, your job title will generally give uh, another person uh, a rough idea of uh, your ability. Um, this is this projection of credibility and um, uh, leadership material thing uh, allows you to stand out, right, from the rest of the high achieving pack. Because, you know, there are, are always, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, very able people who are rising up the ranks in uh, the organization that you're working at. So let's get into the meat of it. And again, this is research that I've now done in several countries. So there's something universal about this, but I'll talk about the American data. So there are three uh, buckets, three main areas uh, which you need to ace if you are going to be seen as someone with uh, executive presence. First off, uh, there's the whole bucket of gravitas. How do you project that uh, you can lead, that you know your stuff cold? So there are six elements which uh, leaders tell me in the data are the things they look for. And the first one that they pick is poise, confidence, and the ability to ride out hard times. Uh, so that's, you know, again, uh, lots of stories and tactics around that in the book. Mm -hmm. The second bucket is communication skills, because you can have all of the um, brilliance in the world if you can't get it across, right? Uh, you're not going to be seen as someone who has uh, leadership presence. Again, six top characteristics. And uh, the first one <laughs> is the ability to command a room, you know, whether it's a team meeting at the end of the week or some larger uh, external stakeholder group or a speech. Yeah. And again, how to do that? Uh, you lose the props, you make eye contact, you keep it short. Uh, and there is a whole recipe in terms of how to do that. And then the third bucket is uh, appearance and how you present yourself. Uh, you know, I'm very relieved that this is number three. This is not a dress for success book, right? But it yes. is important because uh, you only get to make a first impression once. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's a very comforting piece of um, 
kind of knowledge here because top of the six picks is polish, uh, appropriateness for your setting. And of course, if you're in Silicon Valley or on Wall Street, you know, the appropriateness is different. But a lot of uh, tactics and guidance in terms of what that really looks like because you need to dress for your next job. Absolutely. Not the one you have. And uh, at the heart of this book is how to tangle with authenticity. Because quite frankly, uh, these days in particular, you need to lift up and showcase and project, right, the personal brand that is the best version of you, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) That you know how to craft. So this isn't about, you know, fitting into some boxes. It's about lifting up your own strengths, your, uh, you know, your own uh, special, uh, specific value uh, in ways that work in uh, a a corporate or organizational context. And I particularly tangle with the particular challenges of people of color. Because yeah. uh, there is a whole set of data in that um, uh, for that cohort, which again can be very encouraging because this is a very sought after talent pool. But how the heck, uh, again, do you make the best of your authentic strengths? Exactly. I like in particular your description of appearance in the book as being armor. I believe one of the people that uh, you interviewed used that. And you also discuss how the standards vary for men, women, as well as people of color. And that leads us to the importance of uh, unvarnished feedback in the cultivation of presence. Can you discuss that? Well, unvarnished feedback is... uh critical if you're going to grow your EP, uh, your executive presence. And unfortunately, uh, top uh, male leaders, right, uh, are very uncomfortable uh, giving feedback either to women or to people of color. They uh, feel that it's a bit of a mind field that they will be tripped up or they'll be accused of bias or maybe they'll be sued or who knows what. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what what we find, you know, on the front lines, you know, in a team setting, what really works is if the younger talent gives the green light and says, look, I want all 360 degrees of your feedback, obviously the supportive stuff, but let me know where or how I can grow. And, and what... Um, I think ended up by being the best advice is being very concrete and say, say, you know, the younger person should say, look, we're both going to be in this meeting next week. I'm presenting. Uh, I'm red hot. I know that I'm going to, you know, ace this, but there's this one area mm-hmm. <laughs> where I could use some input because I feel I can't uh, yet make that sing in terms of its significance uh, for, you know, our mission or the bottom line or whatever. And if you point a leader into a specific uh, direction, A, uh, they feel good, that it makes them, uh, it makes it easy for them to give you feedback. And it starts a whole new conversation because they understand you want it and you will um, use it as a vehicle to grow. And, and therefore, uh, the whole relationship uh, kind of gets off onto a different foot. But the green lighting and the specificity of the ask, uh, I think, are critical. 
That's great. So now moving on to the other issue of mentorship versus sponsorship, whereas executive presence deals with initial and potentially lasting impressions, the next topic focuses on ongoing relationships. You make clear distinctions between mere supporters, mentors, and sponsors. What's the difference and why is it important? Well, uh, let's dig into the difference between mentors and sponsors because women have a ton of mentors. We have three times more mentors than men. We've been doing this for a long time. And mentors are, are important. Don't get me wrong. Everyone should have a friendly, uh, you know, more experienced person in their lives who really gives unconditional support and is a shoulder to lean on as well as a source of guidance, right? Mm -hmm. But that person is not going to get you promoted. Have, all right. That person is going to be good for your confidence, your self-esteem. And, and sometimes, obviously, there is some useful career advice. A sponsor, on the other hand, is a very different animal. A sponsor is someone who sits in a seat where they can open doors for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually understands and has seen your value because you need to deliver for this person. You need to de deliver performance, uh, trustworthiness, and some kind of additional skill set that they don't have. And it becomes a two-way alliance. You know, and what I show in, I now have done two books on sponsorship. One just came out this last summer. Uh, the protege or the sponsee oftentimes needs to give before you get. You have to earn it. Now, obviously, uh, one of the great tactics here is to find um, a senior person sitting in the right seat, and you can ask them to be your mentor, but they are actually you know, a potential sponsor because they're sitting in the right job. <laughs> and then you can grow it by you know, impressing the heck out of them in terms of your work ethic, your um, importance on a particular engagement, your uh, extraordinary um, you know, uh, ability to handle um, internal and external stakeholders. Uh, maybe you speak Mandarin, maybe you're a woman and ap absolutely see some new opportunities you know, in the marketplace. But what I walk um, uh, uh, a junior talent through is how to um, wear your value on your sleeve, how to win sponsorship, and what in the end to ask for. Because clearly, once you have made your value enormously apparent, uh, you then um, are in a position of getting extraordinary advocacy uh, behind closed doors in rooms where you're not present, and uh, opportunities, right, in terms of, you know, the, being on a project that you really want to be on or, you know, uh, on a client team, which is the one that's really growing. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, so it's, it's very transactional, and it doesn't really matter who the sponsor is. It doesn't have to be a woman or someone of the same identity. You have to respect this person. And you have to feel that they're fabulous at their job. But most of all, they've got to be sitting in a seat in a job which you have figured out uh, can be the key, right, uh, to the right door being opened for you. 
What I found most interesting in this discussion in your book is how the responsibilities differ in the mentoring relationship versus the sponsorship relationship. Uh, you note that in the mentoring relationship, the responsibilities go one way. The mentor is providing advice. The mentee is essentially absorbing wisdom. But when it yeah. comes to sponsorship, that's very much a two-way street. Can you elaborate on that? I can because uh, in some ways we have to um, unravel the muscle memory of, of mentoring to become a uh, fabulous at the sponsorship thing. And, you know, in the data, I can show that women neither earn sponsorship at the same rate as men. Are they 46% less likely to have a sponsor? But they're also less likely to be a sponsor. Mm. And, and you see, that's very important because uh, a sponsor who has a very small portfolio of, of very talented uh, junior talent um, delivering like crazy for them, being trustworthy and productive and uh, contributing a value add, they are much more likely to ri uh, rise up to the next level than a, say, middle-level manager who does not do that. Mm -hmm. um, and what I find is true in the data is that women over mentor, they, they kind of give away advice to a lot of people. Um, the average number of mentees, for instance, uh, uh, an African-American woman at the middle ranks has is 23. Yeah. And I talk to many of these women and they feel um, that they really are so needed and they're so well-intentioned in having so many uh, younger people that they're just giving advice to. But one result of this, because there is such uh, a lot of time consumed by uh, these mentees, is that they don't proactively sponsor. So they don't have wind behind their own sails, right? Yes. And they don't uh, rise up to higher levels in an organization. And again, I saw myself doing that in my younger days as a college professor. You know, I I just gave away a, a whole lot of support. Now, I'm not trying to say, I think everyone should pay it forward to some extent. You should have two or three mentees. Mm -hmm. But as particularly a diverse a talent, wanting and needing to gain power yourself, right? Yeah. You, you also need to sponsor. You know, men uh, since the Stone Age have had their kind of posse. <laughs> folks who really uh, deliver, uh, you know, all kinds of things for them, you know, and it's baked into their brains, I think, much more um, uh, solidly than is true for women that, that the transactional thing uh, is important because sponsorship, if we step back, is really how power is transferred in organizations. You know, who is tapped on the shoulder? Uh, who gets that baton? when you pass it because you know the baton always is passed you know people retire people die you know power is transferred so sponsorship the work i've done on sponsorship is really just making transparent and much more accessible uh what has gone on in the old boys club you know uh four centuries yes. and you know women need to learn how to do both things because it as allows them uh to get from the middle to the top and that's really challenging to do as you begin to highlight 
particularly in the era of Me Too and increased racial animus. Tensions are high, um, as well as um, personal guards against unintentional misunderstandings. So there are some barriers for women and other minorities to overcome to secure that much needed sponsorship. Uh, you're totally right. And uh, a book I've just finished, uh, which is called Me Too in Corporate America, uh, Power, Privilege and the Way Forward, it'll be out in January, tackles this issue head on. And I really lay out how to sponsor in a, a safe, right, <laughs> and inclusive way. Um, because you're totally right. You know, there is a sense in which all kinds of good guys, you know, are now skittish about sponsoring uh, in the uh, era we are in. It's seen as, you know, a little dangerous. Anyway, it's something I've done a lot of thinking about recently. But let me just tell perhaps one last story because it, it joins together the um, on-ramping and the sponsorship world. About four years ago, um, I decided I needed to learn from my own research <laughs> and uh, get myself a new sponsor. Mm -hmm. uh, what I was thinking through is that, um, you know, obviously I'm not climbing some um, corporate ladder anymore, but I do want to continue to have influence and impact uh, with my work. In fact, you know, until unless you're 85 and totally checked out, you know, uh, all of us want to do that, right? Um, so what I came up with is that I would love, this was the last years of the Obama administration, I would love to have some more influence in uh, Washington, particularly in terms of policies around women. Mm -hmm. So I, I literally dusted off my Rolodex and took a look uh, to see who did I know <laughs> in Washington who would possibly sponsor me because, you know, I don't live in Washington, you know, I'm not terribly well connected and I knew I would need someone to open a door. And I discovered that, uh, sure, uh, sure enough, uh, Alan Kruger was uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and he and I had taught together in uh, Princeton some 13 years ago and I knew he liked my work. Mm -hmm. But before I called him, I realized I had to give before I got. So I did uh, a bunch of homework and I realized that a project that had landed on his desk was a request to take a look at the pay gap uh, for various categories of working women, particularly those in low income jobs. I did a lot of work on that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought through how could I contribute to you know this new assignment he had. So I called Alan. Uh, he took my call. He remembered me. And I said, Alan, um, can I be helpful? Um, I know you're a bit shorthanded uh, and you've got a flood of things uh, on your plate. Uh, can I come and actually present some data which uh, I can, uh, you know, mold in ways that would lead to some policy recommendations? Uh, and I can bring a team and, you know, we can actually, you know, uh, try and <laughs> really help you on this. Well, he almost fell off his chair because, you know, you don't get a call in Washington if you head up some amazingly powerful organization from an old friend without expecting someone to ask you for something. Mm -hmm. And he said, sure, that would be fantastic. You know, I, I, I've got very limited head count and, and too many things to do. Um, 
So over a three-month period, you know, I did that for free. You know, I, <laughs> I, I created a, a very valuable piece of analysis for him. And so that winter, he made a few phone calls, and I did get on the committee at the White House that I wanted to be on. Uh, and ended up with some influence in you know that last year of the the administration. And I think the reason that is a powerful story for on rampers as well as for you know people like me uh, in uh, doing some capstone projects in their uh, a long uh, career history is that it shows um, how you can be proactive, right? That's About right. Mining your network from 13 years back and figuring out how to give before you get, because whether it's, you know, handling a social media campaign or, uh, you know, uh, raising money in New Jersey, I mean, whatever it is, right, there are things that you can be additive around. And it is the way in. That's exactly right. I I find that to be an excellent example that although uh, relaunchers may not be uh, looking for opportunities to develop policy in Washington, D.C., it's a great example of how to leverage your network by, for example, offering your skill set, offering your expertise. And what's interesting is throughout this conversation, as well as the other discussions in this series on resumes, recruiting process, our our guests have each touched on the importance of relationship building to obtain information, access, uh, advocates, and strategic alliance. And I think that's a a really great uh, example. Well, thank you. I was um, it is a very good example of me learning from my research, right? Because exactly, uh, I would not have understood how important it was to give before you attempted to get. Uh, exactly, uh, but it's magical. Knowing what we know now, could you please briefly describe the quote classic female mistake and steps for overcoming it? You mentioned in your book about keeping uh, one's head down and expecting right. to be observed and tapped on the shoulder. Yes, you know, uh, I think all of us women like to think, um, particularly uh, in our 20s and 30s, that our work will speak for itself, that what we need to concern ourselves with is writing that best brief, you know, but publishing um, in the right journals, um, racking up the language skills, uh, having, you know, date, the quant skills that are needed for, you know, a, a relaunch of a project or whatever, right? Now, I'm not trying to say those things aren't important. Uh, performance, uh, qualifications, credentials, uh, experience, you know, they're table stakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to stand out for the next opportunity or to get back in if you have left uh, the workforce for a short period of time, you need uh, to have the relationship capital that can uh close that gap (laughs) between merit and success, right? Uh, And without that, you're not going to get to the next uh, stage. 
but again, you know, uh, just stand back for a minute. We know that as careers mature, relationship capital gets to be ever more important. You know, a 25-year-old, and I have a 25-year-old, they're executing against a skill set. And, you know, at that stage in their career, that's kind of 90% of the story. (laughs) By 35, uh, that's taken for granted. And you have to have um, the ability to get buy-in, to have um, relationships with uh, internal and external stakeholders. That is perhaps 30% of the um, what you bring to the table as a professional. And by the time you're 45 or 55 and perhaps are the CEO, it's all you do, right? You're not writing yeah. any books. Uh, you're not, you know, actually uh, writing articles or, uh, you know, running around learning languages. <laughs> you know, it's 100% of what you do. Uh, and uh, it's very important to hang on to that, that, Accessing sponsors, getting good at networks and relationship capital isn't something you have to do for two years, right, in order to get the next promotion. It's something you have to develop, whatever field you're in, to be successful uh, over the course of your life because it only becomes more important. That's great advice. The final question is one that we ask of all our podcast guests. What is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it is something that we already talked about today? Get out your Rolodex, right? (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, that's a metaphorical thing these days. Uh, Really, look at your, uh, uh, you know, whether it's your LinkedIn uh, network or your Facebook, uh, you know, realities again. Uh, and make a list and figure out uh, really ingenious ways of approaching them with your uh, value, whether it's a piece of skill, uh, a set of uh, extraordinary connections. I mean, one thing that I remember winning a sponsor around was actually getting them into a London club. <laughs> Not wow. that I was a member of that London club, but I knew three people on the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it came, uh, I got uh, feedback that this guy was looking for this connection. So I, I took a look at the boards of clubs in London. And lo and behold, because I went to uh, university in Britain, I actually knew some of them. So th- there's weird kinds of kind of currency that you have. Yes. Go use it. That's wonderful. Dr. Sylvia Ann Hewlett, thank you very much for joining us today to share your insights. How can listeners find out more about your research and what are you working on next? Well, uh, Sylvia Ann Hewlett, go to my website. You know, there's all kinds of stuff on it, uh, including videos. Uh, I do a lot of speaking these days. Uh, And I'm on Twitter. Uh, S.A. Hewlett, and I'm uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm an influencer on LinkedIn, so take a look at uh, what I've been writing recently. My brand new book is called Me Too in Corporate America, Power, Privilege, and uh, the Way Forward. And uh, it's both about uh, individual tactics and corporate tactics, but most of all, it's brand new data in terms of the incidents and the fallout, you know, what kind of enduring change 
has this movement uh, really generated? Uh, and how can we make sure that we are on the right side of history, you know, both as individuals and organizations? Great. And thanks for listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Cheryl McGee Wallace, your host. For more information on iRelaunch, please go to iRelaunch.com. If you like this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to share the podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.